Thank you for joining us for the Tucson Baptist Church podcast with Pastor Brent Armstrong. This podcast features the messages from the teaching and preaching ministry at our church. Tucson Baptist Church is located in Tucson, Arizona, and we are committed to loving God, growing together, and reaching our community. If you would like to learn more about our ministry, please visit TucsonBaptist.com. We pray that today's message is an encouragement to you. Matthew chapter number 5, do encourage you to take notes this morning. Do you believe that all the words of the Bible are inspired by the Holy Spirit? I certainly do. In fact, the Bible says in 2 Timothy 3 and verse 16, all Scripture, all Scripture. Uh, That means all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. That word inspiration means God breathed. Uh, God gave us an inerrant, uh, infallible Word of God. That means that we can read the Word of God with confidence, not just some confidence, with a great degree of confidence that what is in the Word of God is for me. The Bible is incapable of error. And with that in mind, I trust that we will be reminded that that holy book that you hold in your lap, that you read, that it is, it's a book for life. It's a book for living. It's a source of of strength. uh, You can read it with enthusiasm. Do you love your Bible? Now, be careful before you say yes. When I say, do you love your Bible, I'm not saying you're going to go to your car today, put your Bible in the back seat, and you'll get it out next Sunday morning. That's not someone who loves their Bible. I'm saying, do you love your Bible, and you're in the Word of God, and you read the Word of God, and you find it uh, a source of strength and hope? I trust that would be yes this morning. In Matthew chapter 5, we'll just read the first three verses. I, 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 I hate to tell you, but I'm excited about it. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 5 for the foreseeable future. I know that's going to be shocking to you. But we're not going to race through Matthew 5, 6, and 7. But Matthew 5 in particular, there's a lot of meat here in Matthew chapter 5. Follow along with me as we begin verse number 1. And seeing the multitudes, he went up into a mountain. And when he was set, his disciples came unto him. And he opened his mouth, and he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, Father, thank you so much for the sweet service we've already had through music, through remembering what you have done for us. And, Lord, I just can't believe that you would die for me, but you did, and thank you. So, Lord, as we get into your word and we now listen to the very words that you said, I pray that you help each one of us to be a careful listener and a willing responder. I love you, Heavenly Father. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. I often try to imagine what Jesus looked like. I know there's lots of pictures, and, and uh, there, there's people that think they know what Jesus looked like. Um, uh, what, sometimes you can see the fire in his eyes, and sometimes the compassion in his eyes, but often I wonder about his voice. What must his voice have sounded like. You see, I think Jesus had a voice of compassion for the lost world because he even said, the harvest truly is plenteous, but the labors are few. I think Jesus had a voice of tenderness for those who were in suffering. He said to the parents of a dead child, the damsel is not dead, but sleepeth and tenderly. You could just hear it in his voice. He said, Dalatha which is being interpreted, damsel, I say unto thee, arise. Jesus had a strong voice of reprimand. Do you remember those old Pharisees and Sadducees? Uh, uh, He said, ye serpents, 
Ye generation of vipers, how can you escape the damnation of hell? Jesus said it as it was. Jesus had a voice of respect. And I remember that story where he was in the Garden of Gethsemane and talking privately to his father. Oh, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but, but as thou wilt. Oh, he, he had a voice that was rich in love for sinners. Do you remember the story where he was hanging on the cross in misery and pain and bleeding and broken? And he even said this, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He also had a voice of victory. Do you remember after the resurrection, he said this, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Amen. By the way, that same Jesus is still with us. Thus far in the book of Matthew, we've only heard Jesus' four, voice four times. Do you remember he, he talked with John the Baptist when um, he was going to be baptized in the Jordan River? And he answered Satan's temptations by quoting Scripture. And, and he began his preaching ministry back in verse 17 of Matthew chapter 4. And, and then he called his first disciples. And we looked at that just a week ago in verse number 19 of chapter 4. This passage before us today is like no other in Scripture. It's a word-for-word -word transcript of an entire address that Jesus gave at a specific time in a specific place. And by the way, it's truths or revolutionary. And at the same time, it has continued to challenge men and women, boys and girls, for 2,000 years. And it's referred to as the Sermon on the Mount. And it encompasses Matthew chapter 5, Matthew chapter 6, and Matthew chapter 7. And before we go on, I think we need to grasp maybe the context here that we see as he begins in verse 1 and 2. In verse 1, Jesus, the Bible says, simply saw the multitudes. These were the people that were mentioned back in Matthew chapter 4, verse 24 and 25. Jesus loved all the people, and the Bible says people were attracted to him, and wherever he went, the masses followed. <clears throat> verse number 1, the Bible says that Jesus went up into a mountain. Many of us have been there. And oftentimes our view can be skewed by our own circumstances or culture. Here in Tucson, we have Mount Lemmon. And we think Jesus went up into a mountain. Mount Lemmon is 10,000 feet tall. That was not the case. If I could best describe it, it would be like a mountain uh, on the west side of town where you can uh, drive around to the top. And, and that would kind of represent what the Sermon on the Mountain and where this took place would be maybe a mountain. Only no cactus. There's uh, lots of grass all the way around the mountain in Israel. Jesus went up into a mountain, and uh, uh, we might even call it a hill versus a, a, a mountain. And, and, and it's called the Mount of Beatitudes, where he shared the Beatitudes. Verse number one, it says this, that Jesus was also seated. Well, that's the exact opposite of what we do today. 
Back then in the culture and context, if a rabbi were seated, uh, uh, it, it was considered uh, that he had authority. If he was standing, it was considered informal. And when Jesus sat down, his teaching emphasized the authority of his office. By the way, I believe that it caused the multitudes to listen carefully and quietly. The Bible says that his disciples came unto him. Now remember, these are brand new disciples. They haven't spent that much time with Jesus. They're, they're just learning how to work with Jesus. They're new on the job. Well, the Sermon on the Mount fulfilled two objectives. The Sermon on the Mount taught unbelievers the ultimate standards of righteousness in the kingdom. And it was meant to show the multitudes that they could never come close enough to God in their present state. That's still true today. You can never come close enough to God to earn salvation through works. They needed to trust the Savior that was before them. And you cannot practice the teachings of Scripture unless you are saved, unless you have confessed your sin. and You have no power to overcome sin apart from Christ. Secondly, I believe the Sermon on the Mount taught believers how they can live as citizens of the kingdom. He showed His disciples then and modern-day disciples now how we can live because Jesus or the Holy Spirit of God lives within us. Notice verse number 2 right there in your Bibles. The Bible says, Jesus, he opened his mouth and he taught them. This was a common phrase of this day. It means that what he was about to say was important. And we also need to understand the context of the Sermon on the Mount. It is commonly called the Beatitudes. Uh, This is derived from a Latin word that refers to a state of happiness or bliss. By the way, uh, if... If we follow the Beatitudes, we will be a blessed people. Each of the Beatitudes begins with that word blessed. And it comes from a Greek word, makarios, which means uh, happy, fortunate, or blissful. And the Bible often speaks of God as blessed. And just as blessedness is a characteristic of God, it's a characteristic of men and women when they share the nature of God through salvation. Our culture says this, man, blessed are the rich, blessed are the famous, blessed are the powerful, blessed are the movers and shakers, blessed are the important people. That's what our world says. But you know what Jesus said? Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, and blessed are the merciful, and blessed are the pure in heart, and blessed are those peacemakers. Blessed are those who are persecuted for standing for that which is right. And Jesus teaches that difficulties endured the right way for the right reason that they can bring happiness. Do you remember King Solomon of the Old Testament? One of the most powerful men of his day. In fact, he could snap his fingers and anything he said could happen and would happen. He had absolutely everything that this world had to offer. The book of Ecclesiastes is the tale of his pursuit of worldly blessedness. And you know what his conclusion was? After looking at everything, he had power, he had money, he had fame, he had women, he had food, he had literally everything. And you know what his conclusion was? Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. 
No matter what you have, a life apart from God has no blessedness. And as we begin this study of the Beatitudes for the next several weeks, I want you to understand that we do not have a real life. We cannot truly be blessed apart from a relationship with Jesus Christ. Only then can you understand the Beatitudes. And so with this lengthy uh, background in mind, let us examine the first of the Beatitudes there in verse number 3. Jesus said, word for word, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And as we will do with each Beatitude that we examine today and over the coming weeks, let's discover what Jesus was really teaching. Let's break it down. So I see discovery number one, the meaning of humility. So therefore, we need to define that term poor in spirit. In this verse, poor comes from a verb meaning to shrink, to cower, to cringe. And Greek writers would use this term to describe people of complete poverty who were reduced to couching in a corner, who were reduced to begging for food. It means being humble. In the first century, there were there was no welfare system, and those who could not uh, work, they were reduced to begging. You understand Luke chapter 16. There was a beggar and he, he found the rich man's table and he would beg for crumbs that would fall from the rich man's table. In West Virginia, uh, we would say that some are poor, but others we would say are dirt poor. And what do we mean by that? Uh, that is, they may have had a house, but their, their house did not have a floor. They were on the dirt. And, um, and growing up in West Virginia, I've seen that happen before. Those people were dirt, uh, dirt poor. Jesus did not refer to material poverty, but being poor, he said, in spirit. So if we take the word poor, that's what it means, poverty. But he adds these words, poor in spirit. Jesus did not say that to be materially poor is a blessing. Often those with little of this world's good are not as distracted or tempted as the rest of us. But that is not the meaning of poor in spirit. There have always been wealthy people who were devoted servants of God. So he's not talking about poor as in no money. Uh, that is not what he means. To be poor in spirit refers to a spiritual poverty. It means to recognize yourself as lost, destitute, and needy apart from God. And every person that is born into this world, uh, they are spiritually dead. In fact, the Bible says that we are born dead in our trespasses and sin. And we've got to understand that it's not only when we realize that we are poor in spirit, that we are spiritually dead. That's only then that we can be saved. There are many biblical references to being poor in spirit. In fact, Isaiah wrote, But to this man will I look, even to him that is poor and of a contrite spirit, and trembleth at my word. The psalmist wrote this, The Lord is nigh to them that are of a broken heart, and saveth such as be of a contrite spirit. Luke chapter 18 describes the prayers of the Pharisees and the publican. And while the Pharisee, he stood up so proud and, uh, and, and he wanted to make sure everybody heard his prayer. The Bible says the publican was poor in spirit because he prayed this, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I'm reminded here that Jesus commented of this man, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the Pharisee. 
For everyone that exalteth himself shall be abased, and he that humbleth himself shall be exalted. Do you remember when God called Moses? Moses pleaded his unworthiness. Peter said, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. The apostle Paul said, You can't use me. I'm the chiefest of sinners. Before we can be saved or be used of God, Jesus says this, that we've got to be poor in spirit. He says, blessed are those who are poor in spirit. Oh, we, of course, we know a prerequisite for salvation is to humble ourselves and to admit uh, that our sad state that I am a sinner, I am deserving of hell, and the only answer is Jesus. And once we are saved, we're useless to God if we are proud. May I say that again? Once we have been saved, we are useless to God if we are full of pride. God resisteth the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time. In James, the Bible says, humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord. And guess what happens? He, God, shall lift you up. So we know the meaning is not talking about our physical, the money we have in our pocket. It's talking about our spiritual poverty. Well, what's the importance of humility? As we discover, number two, the importance of humility, I want you to notice that Jesus made humility first on the list. He could have talked about a a, a lot of things here in the other Beatitudes, but he makes this first on the list. I I ask uh, Andrea to put this in your notes this morning. There's a quote from a commentator, and it really has helped me understand this. Follow along there in your notes. Jesus puts this Beatitude first because humility is the foundation of all other graces, a basic element in becoming a Christian. Pride has no part in Christ's kingdom. And until a person surrenders pride, he cannot enter the kingdom. The door into his kingdom is low, and no one who stands tall will ever go through it. We cannot be filled until we are empty. We cannot be made worthy until we recognize our unworthiness. We cannot live until we admit we are dead. We might as well expect fruit to grow without a tree as to expect the other graces of the Christian life to grow without humility. We cannot begin the Christian life without humility, and we cannot live the Christian life with pride. What a great explanation. The importance of humility. But today, Christians hear very little about humility. In the Christian books and magazines and movies and conferences that we can go to, they're filled with information. How to be a godly man. How to be a godly woman. They instruct us on how to have your finances in order. How to keep your marriage strong. How to be a good parent to your children and a myriad of other themes. But the session on how to live a humble life, there's not a line for that session. I find nothing at these conferences and books about how we're to humble ourselves before God. And even though we've been saved, may I just say to all of us, and and there's hundreds of people here this morning who are saved, you know Jesus Christ, your personal Lord and Savior. You just partook of the Lord's Supper. May I remind you that every one of us, Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit. Those who recognize their spiritual poverty. Um, (coughs) Some would say, Pastor, What about this fact? 
That as Christians, we've been given the righteousness of, of Christ. We're saints. We are holy ones. Why should we go around putting down what God lifts up? We, we no longer have to be poor in spirit. That is just for the lost people. Well, if that's your idea, you've missed the point this morning. When you, all, when you are saved, yes, God gave you the righteousness of Christ and He adopted you into His family. However, we still live in our sinful flesh. And that flesh manifests itself with something called pride. And Proverbs 16 and verse 5 says, Everyone that is proud in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Now, I could easily say, do you think that the sin of homosexuality is abomination? And we would say, amen, that's right. But do you know that verse says that if you have pride in your heart, that's an abomination to God? We must defeat pride in order to live a victorious Christian life. Well, discovery number three is, okay, pastor, I understand the definition. I understand the importance, but how in the world do I get this? Let's look at the attainment of humility. The attainment of humility. Humility cannot be achieved by human means because our flesh fights against it. Humility is a work of God. However, the Bible commands us to be humble. How can God be the only one who gives me humility and yet he commands me to be humble? Well, let me give you five steps or five ways that we can actually build humility in our life. The first step is to admit our sin and be saved. A person who has not been saved cannot begin uh, to learn humility. You must humble yourselves, admit your sin, and accept Christ into your life. There's going to be millions of people in hell because they were not willing to humble themselves and say, I'm a sinner in need of a Savior. The second step is to put our focus on God, to put our focus on God. When we discipline ourselves to daily Bible study and prayer, when we seek His will in every decision and we strive to be pleasing to Him, we're on the road then to being poor in spirit, recognizing our spiritual poverty. This is why we need to be in our growth group class. This is why we need to be in our midweek services. This is why we need to come back tonight. It's because we, we will watch 8, 10, 12, 20 hours of television and say from 1030 to 12, that'll suffice me for a whole week. The second step is that we must put our focus on God. The third step is one that none of us are going to like, including, my, including myself, and that is we must deny ourselves. We must deny ourselves. Jesus said, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. It takes a concentrated effort, but when people praise you, do not gloat in it. Give it back to God and thank Him. If you're the type of person, I want the pat on the back, you are not poor in spirit. If you're the person that someone praises you, well, praise the Lord. The Lord gave me the talent. Give it back to Him. The fourth step, and this is one that all of us could do today, is we ask for humility. We ask for humility. Do you know that David prayed this? David, before God, said this, Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit within me. That was his prayer. Have you ever prayed a prayer like that? God, he's the one who gives all good gifts. And we should pray daily that God would teach us to give us a humble spirit. The fifth step is to display humility daily. To display humility daily. Go out of your way to put others 
before yourself. Give up something for someone else. When we assert our rights, no one wins. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory. But in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. How do you display humility? Don't talk about yourself. Talk about someone else. That's how you display humility. Well, our fourth discovery here this morning, what are the tests for humility? Pastor, I've heard what you said. I think I'm a pretty humble person. Let's take a test. The test for humility. A humble person lives to exalt Christ. A humble person lives to exalt Christ. A sold-out Christian takes worship seriously. The Christian studies the Word because he wants to learn more about Christ. The Christian prays because he craves that communication with God. The Christian shares the witness of Christ. So a humble person lives to exalt Christ. Like Paul, the humble person says, for to me to live is Christ. A humble person, secondly, doesn't concentrate on his own desires. He doesn't concentrate on his own desires. Someone said this, humility is not thinking less of yourself. It is simply not thinking of yourself. The Christian puts Christ first, others second, and himself last. A humble person just doesn't concentrate solely on your desires. Thirdly, a humble person refuses to complain. Oh, my How are we doing on the test so far? A sure sign of a person who's in rebellion to Christ is when he whines and he gripes and he complains about everything and everyone. Nothing meets his expectation and nothing pleases him because he's only thinking about himself or herself. Next, a humble person builds up other people. You always hear the Christian with an encouraging word, praising others, thanking God. Listen, it is a joy It is a blessed feeling when you brag on other people. I enjoy doing that. Now, there's some other areas I have to work on. But this is one of them that I love thanking you for being involved. And I love uh, uh, building up people that are involved in our ministry. Um, Next, a humble person prays. We learned a lot about this this past week in our Stay Strong conference, and Pastor David gave us a session on Wednesday night about how that we could pray for a whole hour. Wow, that's a long time, but a humble person prays. And just as a physical beggar begs for uh, uh, his physical needs, a humble person, you know what they beg for? Their spiritual needs. And if your prayer life is poor, you need a dose of humility. Spend some time with the Lord. I like this next one. I hope this could characterize you, but a humble person is thankful. A Christian knows that all he has comes from God. The Christian gives God the credit and can never thank Him enough. And here's the last one that's a test. A humble person is obvious. A humble person is obvious. Here's what I mean by that. That Christian, that man or that woman is humble and they don't even know it. But other people see it in them. Um, and so let me give you a couple of concluding thoughts here in our time this morning. Jesus said of the humble or the poor in spirit, for theirs 
is the kingdom of God. Do you know what the reward is for those who recognize their spiritual poverty? They have promised a home in heaven. Do you have that home in heaven promised this morning? Do you know if you were to die today that you would spend your eternity in heaven? If you've never been spiritually poor and recognize your spiritual poverty, recognize being poor in the spirit, may I say that's not your home, that's not your future home. Those who declare themselves unworthy, God is the one who makes worthy. Those who declare themselves worthless, God makes that person valuable. Those who declare their sinfulness, God's the one who makes them saints. And those who declare their spiritual poverty, God's the one who makes them spiritually rich. Every person here this morning, whether you're saved or whether you're lost, we all need to become poor in spirit. Oftentimes we recognize that with dress or finances or vehicles or house or whatever. That is not what Jesus is referring to in any manner. The poor in spirit are those who recognize that I don't that spiritually I have poverty and I'm a beggar before God and only God is the one who can fill those needs. There have been a couple humbling moments in my life. I remember at the age of 19 I thought I was saved. I had gone through the motions. And I had to tell Jack Smargo, went to his house and said, I'm struggling with this. I've got desires that just aren't right, and I don't feel any conviction when I do wrong. And he sat down with me, and he went through the Romans road with me. I was like, you could put that up. I know the Romans road. Here's the thing, is I know I don't have a relationship with God. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death, but it's the gift of God that gives eternal life. That if thou shalt confess with thy mouth and believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. And as a 19-year-old, I knelt beside his couch and I trusted Jesus Christ. You know what I do? I had to humble myself. I had to become spiritually poor in that moment and realize that I am nothing and in need of a Savior. Every one of you have to do the same or have done the same. One of the second times I remember as a Bible Baptist church in Hampton, Georgia, the world by the tail. My wife uh, stayed at home. She was homeschooling our three young children. And, um, and it was a Sunday night. And on that Sunday night, the pastor preached on Elijah and Elisha. And I was humbled that night when I realized that God wanted me to do something and he called me into full-time ministry that night. And it was a humbling moment when I got on my face at the altar before God and, and I said, Lord, I surrender. I will do whatever you want me to do. And I'll tell you another humbling moment is when it made absolutely no sense, absolutely no sense for me to leave South Carolina and come to Arizona is when God called me to come to this church. And, and I had to say, Lord, what in the world are you doing with me? You, uh, I, and I had to understand and recognize my own spiritual poverty at that point, my own weakness, my own frailties. And my, I had to say, Lord, apart from you, I cannot go to Tucson. And it was a humbling moment. A wise person once said this, in order to inherit God's kingdom, you must give up your kingdom. In order to inherit God's kingdom, you must give up your kingdom. Do you know what? God knew what he was doing. God knew what he was doing when he saved me. God knew what he was doing when he called me into ministry. And God knew what he was doing when he called me to Tucson. Even 
when I realized I was low and in need of his help. I wonder, Jesus said, first and foremost, setting like a foundation before we even get into the other Beatitudes, blessed are the spiritually impoverished. Do you recognize this morning your need of Jesus in your life? You say, I've been saved 40 years. And I say, do you recognize your need of Jesus in your life? 